I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Poddleters. I hope you're well. In this episode, I speak to Alistair Campbell, who's probably best known for being Tony Blair's right-hand man. Funnily enough, I came to know him through his work to do with mental health. And he also now happens to be one of my best friend's dads. We discuss his new book, Living Better, How I Learned to Survive Depression, and lots more. I really hope you enjoy. And as always, please do rate, review and subscribe. Bye. Hello and welcome to Adulting. Today I'm joined by Alistair Campbell. Hello, I'm Alistair Campbell. How are you? I'm okay. So for people who don't know who who you are, Mm. can you tell us and give us an intro to Alistair Campbell? Who are these people? The listeners. Do none of them know who I am? Probably not. (laughs) Seriously? No, I'm joking, but you can't make everyone knows who you are. (laughs) No, I don't. Um, So what do I have to do to say who I am in my own words to somebody who's never heard of me? Yeah, so if you had to describe what it is that you do and what it means for you, how would you describe that? Okay, well, my website, (laughs) alistaircampbell.org, where you can buy my new book, uh, Living Better, How I Learned to Survive Depression, it says, Alistair Campbell, writer, communicator, strategist. Um, what I tend to say to people on, happens sometimes on planes when, where was it recently? It was in Albania. Right. Uh, I got on a plane and there was an Italian I was sitting next to. And it's quite, because in, in Britain, most people do vaguely know who I am. So I, I can say I'm honest. If they say who I am, I can say I'm honest to come. And then usually they, oh yeah. Um, or they know me anyway and they say, oh, you're honest to come, aren't you? So it's sort of, but with this Italian who clearly didn't have a clue who I was, and so I, this, they, they asked me what I did, um, and I said, well, I used to be in politics. Uh, I was Tony Blair's spokesman. They've nearly always heard of Tony Blair. Uh, I was Tony Blair's spokesman and director of communications and strategy. And now I kind of do lots of different things. So that's what I say. Okay. Was that very long-winded? No, it's an interesting answer. How do you feel when someone doesn't recognise you? Have you got so accustomed to people knowing who you are that it would shock you? Hmm. No, not at all. Um, uh, no, I quite like it, actually. I, 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 I sometimes like recognition and I sometimes like non-recognition. And I do sometimes quite... Like, for example, when, we, when Fiona... You've met Fiona, haven't you? Yeah. My partner... 40 years. Uh, Your girlfriend. My, my, my living lover. <laughs> when Fiona and I were in Germany recently, she had booked a hotel. And so it was in her name, Miller. And so they spent the whole time that we were there so calling me Herr Miller, right? Which was just funny. I find it quite funny. And then, so then what happened was one of the people in the hotel, it was actually the same hotel where the, the football wag stayed when, do you remember when Victoria Beckham in Baden-Baden and they all were spending zillions on champagne Vaguely, and, yeah. and some of the players were nipping in and out and all sorts of stuff. So we got to talk to some of the, um, some of the uh, doodars, the staff, and, but they kept calling me Mr. Herr Miller. So I, 
eventually you got to talk, they said, well, what do you, you know, what's, what's your background? What do you do? So then I sort of said, well, I kind of was in politics and I, I was actually, I was Tony Blair's spokesman, you see. Oh, my God. So then, of course, they went away and they couldn't... Somebody tried them, to Google you. Know, you. <laughs> tried to Google this, you know, Alastair Miller, who was Tony Blair's spokesman. They obviously thought I was a complete liar. So eventually I had to explain to them my name and then they could check it out properly. That is interesting to have such a big part of your life dictate, though, how people view you. Like, have you become accustomed to that, to having... Yeah, I think I've kind of... Yeah, I have, and, and, and it's... I don't mind it, actually. I've kind of got, you know, I can live with it. Um, I mean, if I, do a, if I do a speech, I mean, there aren't many speeches being done at the moment, but, it, you know, in the days when that was like my main income was going around the world sort of, you know, talking about politics and life and whatever, um, there, there wouldn't be a single occasion on which the word Blair did not appear in the introduction. What's happened since, though, interestingly particularly on the mental health agenda, they now sort of say, um, they usually say things like Alistair's best known or Alistair came to prominence as Tony Blair, now spends a lot of his time, which has nothing to do with Tony Blair. But there's always that Brit, that pivot. Well, I think, not growing up in quite as a political household as, as you would have created, I came to know you through you talking about mental health. Wow, okay. I didn't even really realise. And when I met Grace, I didn't even know that... My daughter. Yeah, I didn't even realise that that's what you'd done. Wow. In fact, funny enough, when I was writing, doing this book, when I was doing the research for this book, it came out of a TV documentary that I did. And one of the interviews I was doing for the film was at Cambridge University. And we were... I was sitting interviewing this guy, Golan Kandika, who's a blood expert about the mental health implications, what you can get from blood tests. And we would do, you know, classic sort of film winky-wanky thing. They wanted to just do it on a park bench, just like a normal conversation right. kind of thing. So while we're being filmed talking, this little gaggle of young guys sort of appears. And I could see there that they do recognise me and they are talking about me and they're waiting, right? So when the, when the filming finished, they came over, we had a chat. And one of these guys said, I'm so excited to see you because we're, I'm actually finishing my dissertation today and it's about new Labour communication strategy. I can't believe, can I just, you know, if I can talk to you as an original source, like, you know, wow, I'm made. I said, that's fine. So we sit down and chat. And at the end of it, I said, so what's the uh, politics studies like at Cambridge at the moment? He said, oh, I don't do politics, I do history. <laughs> Did that make you feel old? Fuck. Yeah, it did. It really made me feel old. That we are now studied by students of history. Um, no, it doesn't. It doesn't bother me really. I mean, it, the only the, it's just that uncomfortable bit. If you if you sort of have to explain, and I do get. I know you know, you know Grace, and I think I think Grace and the boys and Fiona sometimes find it. They take the piss out of me because they. Grace has this thing about when we're out for a walk. I will nod and say hello to pretty much everybody if they're looking at me. Right. And Grace says, why are you doing that? They don't have a clue yet. They don't care who you are. But actually, the instinct is because I think they will think it's rude if I don't, if they do know who I am. Though I think that's true. And on the off chance that they do, you want to seem nice. I don't care, really, but I, I just don't want to... I just think it's sort of, you know... you gotta, you just got to be a bit on, you know, on it the whole time. You certainly don't want people going around saying, God, I asked to come with such a miserable bastard or... 
But that is what people thought of you previously, wasn't it? Before... What, miserable bastard? I think people thought you were quite grumpy. And do you think that when you first spoke about your mental health, do you think that was a huge turning point in people's way that they viewed you? No, no. I mean, I don't know is the honest answer. Because I, I, I honestly don't think about what people think of me in that way. That's um, an amazing freedom to have. Well, it is really. because I'll tell you why. Because I think if you think about what the people who matter think about you then it'll be fine. Right. Um, now, it's true that if you have a public profile, which I have had for quite a long time and still do, then you will have people who have their opinion of you formed by people who don't know you and don't particularly like you. Newspapers, right-wing newspapers in particular. Broadcasters who, you know, a lot of them just have to talk without often knowing what they're talking about. They're just filling space. So I did for a long time, I think, have a profile that I think was... I'm not complaining about it because I don't really care, but it was unfair and it was inaccurate. But it didn't bother me because I don't think it really impinged upon the effectiveness of what I was doing, which was trying to help Tony Blair do his job, not worry about me. And so... But I think that as long as... Look, if I thought my... If I thought when they were alive that my parents thought I was a a war criminal, if I thought that my kids thought I was a compulsive liar, if I thought that Fiona thought I was comparable with Goebbels, I'm just going through some of the things that have been said, that would worry me. But they don't, so it doesn't. You've got a really strong sense of self then in that sense. Because to be able to... I think a lot of people could feel malleable to the views of that many people, especially if you're someone that perhaps is prone to falling into mental health that isn't that stable. So that's a, a, an interesting dynamic to have. It is an interesting dynamic. And, and funny enough, I had, um, in, in, as you know, in the book, I've got this mental health scale that I do, one to ten. Mm-hmm. One is delirious, ten is suicidal. And I had a guy wrote to me yesterday, and he said, I've had some fantastic feedback on the book, and particularly, in fact, on, on this idea of measuring your own moods on a daily basis. And this guy said, you know, thanks for writing the book. I've got a lot out of it. And then he just said, I was four or five yesterday, but then, I, can't, I don't know the circumstances, but then I got a lot of abuse and I, and, I, and I plummeted to eight. And I thought, wow, yeah, I can see that. I mean, because I don't get that. Mm. It just doesn't bother me if people are, you know, if I get loads of stuff on Twitter or whatever, it doesn't bother me. And then I remember when Grace was at Edinburgh, doing the Edinburgh Fringe, and she was doing her show. And I mean, you know, it sold out, she did well, she got really good reviews. She got one really, 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 really bad review. And I, could, I, just, I was really shocked at how much it's upset her. I feel the same. Do if you? I get one bad podcast review, I think about it for weeks. Do you? I really... Look, but that's I'm, such a waste of your energy. It's a complete waste of energy. I, and I wonder if... And I don't like to gender things, but I do think that sometimes women are conditioned to feel more impacted by how other people view them than Maybe. men. But listen, do you know what I think you should do with that? This is what I do. Okay. I think what you should do with that is, is actually... This is what we did. I, eventually, I did... The, I think I managed to persuade Grace with this review. One, I found out that the guy who wrote it went to Eton... Right, so he's a fucking knob, and could have been prime minister without being qualified to be. Um, How did you find that out? Was it on a? It was a. It was a newspaper review. It was a newspaper review, and his name was on it. And I just sort of, you know, I think I remember. Sort of Google it, blah blah blah, and so that was the first thing. So that that then gives you a kind of, you know, we've got a bit of a kind of class warrior thing that we can say. Oh, Grace is going to eat, and he's bound to say that he doesn't like people like us. 
Um, but then the second thing I think you've got to do is actually strip away all the rubbish around it. Like, for example, I think you can make the case that he probably wasn't reviewing her show. He was thinking, how can I have a go at the fact that she's my daughter and that's the only reason why I'm here anyway. Right. Okay, some of that. Strip away all that and then actually try to see whether there's any legitimate criticism in there and then think about that. I do do that, but then sometimes um, you can do... So I, I used to love... I used to be one of those people that love Kristen and I like picking it apart, but actually after a while, sometimes you can't be... I would be so willing to change when someone else gave me what I took to be constructive criticism that actually in the end you can whittle away so much that you've got nothing left. So I think... Well, in which case, don't do it. So it works... Just push it aside. In both sides. Do you know what I mean? Just push it aside, then. So wh who came up with your scale? How long have you been doing your... Uh, I came up with it in... Over, over a period of time, it's just like, and now it's just, it's almost like a momentary thing when I wake up. I just give myself a number out of 10. And it helps me kind of frame the day. Um, so like, if I'm two, which is like mega, a bit manic, I have to be a bit careful, because uh, I never, I never want to go to one, because that's kind of, you know, you think you can fly airplanes and stuff like that. Um, two's okay. Three and four is where I like to be. Five is what I would call a bit boring, middle of the road, not going to change the world, but, you know, I'll be all right. And then six is when I start to really worry. And then seven, eight, nine is just terrific. Um, and what it does is it just, it just gives me a little sort of start today. So, like, today is a good example. Um, I, I didn't know whether you'd be filming or not. Okay, is that why you've got a nice outfit on? No, it's not why I've got a nice outfit. It's why I shaved. Right. Right. And you had your nice glasses, which I'm now not wearing. Were they for show? No, no. Were they for the video? <laughs> they're the only glasses I've got. <laughs> so, but the thing is, shaving is really interesting. And men who get depression, I get a lot of feedback on this. When you wake up, if I wake up and I'm six, I can get out of bed, I can face the world, I can do stuff, but I don't want to do stuff that's tedious. Right. And I don't want to do stuff that's going to make me tired. Now, how... So, brush my teeth, yeah, I can do that. But then if I brush my teeth, I think, oh, I can't be arse shaving. So actually, I will, if I'm feeling five, six, I will make myself shave. And it'll just lift me a little bit. I think, I've done that, that's good. And then things like, you know, like, t so today, by the way, I was four, so that's okay. So that's right? where you want to be. It's pretty much where I want to be. And, and actually then Fiona and I went for a swim in the Lido. I felt good after that. I'm doing this project at the moment I'm quite enjoying. Fiona wanted me to go for a walk with the dog. I didn't want to go, particularly because I was kind of on a roll. I knew that you were coming. So the, so what I'm doing is I'm just kind of calibrating it all the time. If I'd have been on f seven, no, if I'd have been on six, I would have gone for the walk because that would have been a way, I think, of making myself feel better. So I would say what you're talking about now is self-care, which you're right, has, is with depression it is very interlinked and in the more that you feel depressed the less things you want to do that are looking after yourself fewer things fewer things, fewer things. sorry do you mind me correcting no you, you can correct me yeah okay. i'll tell you how to do interviews as well why what do you want to tell me i think, I've I'm, got doing, I think I'm doing a great job <laughs> you're doing okay so anyway what i was going to say you're a natural strategist and you're managing and i guess this is what you talk about in the book but you found ways of coping but how how does it throw that feeling i imagine that it exacerbates the feeling for you when you feel out of control of your mental health because naturally by design you're someone that likes to be in order strategized yeah, i think that's why yeah i think that's 
very astute observation. Thank you. Uh, no, nay. <laughs> um, you're the first person I've met with that name. I know, I'm so Ever. unusual, I might be able to say. Uh, no, no. It's actually Anoni, but... Anoni, but you've... It's like so... Leviosa, but it's Leviosa. Do you know that? Levio. Have you not watched Harry Potter? Don't worry, we're getting off track. Carry on. Um, so, yeah, I think that is a very good question because I I do like to be in control. And I don't, and I don't think that's a bad thing. No. I like to be in control of my environment. I like to be in control of my emotions. And I like to be in control of what's happening around me. Um, and if I'm not, I feel a bit edgy. Um, and so when, when I do get either end of the scale, but particularly when I'm depressed, because I think as Grace will tell you, when, when I'm on the two, three, four end of the, I'm a really good laugh to be with. I can, you know, and I've got loads of energy and I'm funny and, you know, and I'll do stuff for people and all that. Um, when I'm at the other end, I, I'm very conscious of not feeling how I want to feel, which is a bad start. And I'm also very conscious that my mood is having an impact on other people as well, for the worse. And and I feel utterly powerless to do anything about it. And, and, and I hate that sense of powerlessness. Fiona's spoken really candidly. I've read an interview that she wrote about. And I think this is one of the hardest things. And I've had friends who've had depression. And it can bring out really... But the worst thing is you're already dealing with these inside terrors. And then on the outside, you're kind of replicating them to the people that you love. And I think that's one of the hardest imbalances of probably when you're feeling really depressed. Yeah. Because not only are you going through this really dark moment, but you can see, watch yourself pushing other people away. Yeah, for sure. And also you can see, you can watch, you can see yourself pushing them down. And that's hard, but, you know, and, 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 you know, Fiona's written a chapter in the book and she makes the point that for a lot of time she blamed herself mm. for my depression. You know, she lives with me, she's meant to be the most important person in my life, and he's not happy. It's my fault. And that's a very, very, very common thing. Mm. And, of course, for the depressed person, and I did this for I pans up, uh, I don't feel good about this, but I, for a long time, was perfectly happy for her to think that. Because you, you feel like the victim? No, it's just like... Of your own depression? No, because partly you say, well, why can't you make me happy? Right. You know? And if she's saying it, that's reinforcing that sense of... So it's not a victim thing so much as you're trying to find reasons for how you're feeling. And the way, the easy way to do that is say, well, she's, it's not my fault, it's her fault. Or it's not my fault, it's not my fault, it's my newspaper's fault, it's mm -hmm. my boss's fault, or whatever it might be. You find ways of sort of... And it's so the, only, the reason why I think I'm in much better shape than I used to be now with depression, apart from maybe age and a bit of wisdom and you know, just my life being a bit different anyway. But I think actually that was one of the biggest things. I did I did an interview recently with a, a guy who was interested in psychiatry and he asked me what was the most important thing I got from seeing a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. which to re and, and I put loads of my psychiatrist in the book and lots of the exercises we've done and so forth. But actually when I thought about it, I never thought about it before in that, in that way. The best thing he did, I think, was Fiona came to some of my sessions, was to persuade her to stop blaming herself for my depression. And and also he gave her a book to read about forgiveness, which clearly made a big impression on her. And also, I guess, you having to realise that it, you can't blame yourself either. It's kind of like a blameless situation, you know? Well, maybe you can sometimes, but yeah. You can blame, I suppose, you can blame the behaviours and you can feel guilty or sorry for the actions that you take when you're in that position yeah but the actual feeling when when was your first ever low point that you can remember at what age or what point was the catalyst for the 
Well, I mean, what I've recorded in the book, and I, and, I, and I don't know if this is the very first, but it's the first, when I first started seeing a psychiatrist and he, David, asked me that question, what, your, your very astute and interesting question about when was my first memory, I said to him, uh, it was this, which I've written about in detail in the book, it was this moment when I was probably seven or eight, Maybe I can't remember the exact age. It was definitely before I was 10. Okay. I know that because of something else that was going on. Um, and we were in this Hebridean island in Tyree where my dad came from. And I'd been playing football. And in this football match, I was having a bit of argy-bargy with this, this guy who was bigger than me. And we ended up having a fight and I got really quite badly duffed up. And where the school was, where the, this football match was, it was quite a long walk back to where we were staying, and I was on my own. And I remember stopping on the way. I was I was sort of toughing it out there, but I stopped on the way, and I sat on this little rock, and I remember just sort of crying my eyes out. And it wasn't the physical pain of having beaten beaten up. It was the it was I had this really strong sense of isolation, and what I did. I think, and you, do, you don't know when mm. your childhood, whether you've kind of, you know, rationalised it after the event and all that. But I, I, I do remember saying to myself, you're going to have to learn how to look after yourself, physically and emotionally. And funnily enough, Fiona didn't know that story. And when she wrote in, in, in her chapter in the book, she has said, that's the first time she'd heard that story, but it totally chimes with everything she's ever seen about me. That when I get into real difficulties I want to take it all in myself and I want to and I think that has made my depressions worse I think mm. and one of the best things that the other thing that's changed my approach to depression is now understanding that actually sometimes I can't do it on my own and also understanding it's best to get it out there straight away well I would say and that's that's really interesting I will not go back to how I've been so young um, and trying to understand that feeling so I didn't know what depression was and I grew up at, at that age and I grew up at an age where maybe it was spoken up a bit more but I think for men in general internalising things is a gendered concept that you're conditioned to do and I think that's why men with mental health illnesses probably like do take longer to come up about and recognise them because as women we, do, we are more inclined to share and talk yeah there's, I, there's something in that although Conversely, I do know women who have been <clears throat> very, very secretive about their mental health conditions. With you, but personally or in, like, in what? In the family and in right. the workplace. It's quite interesting now being kind of out there as a sort of mental health ambassador and stuff. I get people who write to me and talk to me. And I'm, 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 I met a woman recently who, she's a nurse and she's bipolar uh, and she won't. She's not told anybody. So you don't think it is gendered then, as much as no. I, I think it, it might be, but I all I know men who are very open, and I women women are not. And I think generally, yes, women are more open, and women are more liable to talk about it. But I don't think it's kind of um, it's as clear cut as some some people might think. And I, I do think generally, if you go back through a lot of this stuff, is about kind of you know the way that man civilization has developed, and. You know, man, the man is meant to be strong, and he cares for the woman, and he hunts for the woman, and he, and he, you know, you you have to be strong at all times. You know, you don't cry. Um, well, it's bullshit, and it's not. It's probably always been bullshit, and I do think that. 
I think if we can get over this idea that it's somehow weak to be, you know, it can be irritating to people and it can be, and it can cost an employer, you know, the labour of his staff and all that stuff, but it's not weak. Um, and I think that's the, the big hurdle to get over. Is this is this so? I that's why I worry about this gender thing because I think it plays into this idea right. of women are weak and men are strong. Oh no! So I I I would look at maybe the opposite way. I would say that men under a patriarchy are actually one of the things that you lose is this ability to feel as though you're allowed to be emotionally vulnerable. And I think that is a weakness on men's part because it it weakens you. Whereas women have strength in one of the right. the amazing. But I feel stronger. Yeah, because you've spoken about it. And I also feel stronger. Be, and, and also, I have that sense of it as well. I, I don't feel. I don't feel going around the place. And funny enough, even with the newspapers, who are, you know, pretty rough in many, many ways, but on the mental health agenda, they give me a pretty good time. Um, and they're quite supportive. So, and, and it's, you know, I think what they, you know, what they often say about me is, well, he's got a rough, tough guy, and even he can talk about this. Right. Then, so I think that strengthens me, in a way. No, I agree. What, what did you think when you were seven or eight years old, definitely before 10? Um, what did you process that emotion as? Or did you put it aside until it came up again? Did you have it? I don't know. I honestly don't know. It's just that I could remember it. And um, I don't know. I don't know. I had, I had, um, I mean, the big kind of the defining mental health moment for me was actually not mine. It was my brother's when my brother was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And it was probably... I don't know whether it was wise or not, but I ended up going down. He was in hospital in, in Southampton. Uh, he was in the army. It was a military psychiatric hospital. And I ended up going down there and staying with him. And that was a real, that was one of the, yeah, it was defining. It was a defining period in my life because it was like, I didn't know anything about mental illness really. Mm-hmm. Although funny enough, on that island where I had that incident when I was about seven, a few years later, I can remember being at my Uncle and Aunt's croft, and the croft opposite. What is a croft? Croft's like a small piece of land, and and, and the crofter looks after that land. Right. Basically, you live, you know, living on a small farm, really. And my, I and mean, that's where my dad was was raised. And opposite my uncle's croft, there was a guy there who was being, he was being sectioned under the Mental Health Act, um, and it and that had a. I mean, I, I can... So I don't know what age I was then, but again, pre-10. And I watched... He was out driving a tractor. He was called Sydney. He was out drive, driving a tractor. And he had his daughter on his lap. And there were police there. And there were health, health there. I think there was an ambulance. I can't remember. Um, and he was sectioned. And I can just remember being absolutely fascinated about... What what happened? What was that about? That he was being taken away from his family, and what had he done? And and bizarrely, this is so weird. A few years ago, a few years later, I was working on one of my uncle's farms on the mainland in a place called Loch Gilphead, near Loch Gilphead, and there was a nine-hole golf course that was ne- next to a, a psychiatric hospital. And the patients used to come round, to come down and just watch people playing golf. Wow. And there he was. 
Really? There he was. When you went to see your brother, who had schizophrenia, mm. back then, what was the... Because I think even now, we have a very limited understanding of what schizophrenia really is, and people use um, lots of language that actually applies to different mental illnesses. Mm. How did that impact your family? And, and oh, well, my, my, you know, I quote my mum in the book. She said that when she got the phone call to say that Donald was invalided out and taken to hospital, uh, she said... My life changed in that moment, and it never changed back again. Wow. Um, now, in many ways, Donald had a great life, uh, considering his, his condition, but he would have had a very different and more fulfilled life, I think, if he hadn't have had schizophrenia. And look, my dad was a vet, so he come with scientific background, but we knew nothing about schizophrenia, mm. literally nothing. And even today, as you say, I've got a friend who's a psychiatrist who says that when he diagnoses particularly young people with schizophrenia, he says one of the hardest things is actually explaining to families what it's not. It's really stigmatised. I say it's one of the worst because there's so many films made about there's so well, many stories about it's really villainised as a mental... Well, it's like psycho killer, you know. Yeah. It's like split personality, Jekyll mm. and Hyde. It's not that. What, what schizophrenia is, is, is when your mind, the workings of your mind become separate from the reality around you. So... Donald would have, and, and, and Grace actually has got film of Donald talking about this, he would have times when he would think that that radiator button is talking to that light bulb about what we're talking, and we're talking about him. Right. When he was really bad, psychotic. Now, a lot of the time he had drugs that kept that under control. And so he was lucid mostly. Yeah, it was mainly lucid, but it had, you know, pretty horrific side effects, including the fact that it takes 20 years off your life, which is why I died age 62. Um, so it had a massive effect. And it also definitely, there's no doubt about this, that was when I became utterly fascinated by mental illness. How, what's the age difference between you two? Three. Three years. So he's he was older. Older. Mm. And that's such a hard time to lose a brother. But so he saw you speaking about mental health. Oh yeah, and he was actually really up for. We were we were talking about making a film about him. Wow. Called the Happy Schizophrenic. Um, now, when my mum was still alive, she didn't want me to talk about Donald because my mum hated me being in the public eye. She hated all the shit I got in the press. She hated hearing about me on the telly and the radio because it was usually stress and trouble. If I was a hilarious bit in the book where I record a conversation, she was so sort of upset. And I was telling Tony Blair and he phoned her up. And it, it, anyway, she said to me, Tony, I've got to have to go because I've got to tell you, Alistair working for you gives me really bad diarrhea. <laughs> Amazing. So, um, so she she didn't want me to talk about Donald because she worried that him being out there in the public eye in any way would be bad for him. Right. He was so up for it; it was ridiculous. Right. He really wanted to do it. So yeah, he was good. But there's there's another line in the book I quote where he says, "Oh God, I saw you on the telly last night talking about you. You had one attack of psychosis, and you're like Mr. Bloody Mental <laughs> Get them to come and talk to somebody who really knows about what mental illness means." <laughs> Which is a fair point, but, you know, he had, um, he's, the, he's the real, when I, when I say to myself sometimes when I do, you know, you'd be out at some bloody meeting that you agree to go and do, and it's a cold Tuesday night, and you've got to get on the train, and why am I doing this? But actually, he's the, he's the real reason. Did you have anywhere else in your family? Anyone else, your mum or your dad? Did, did they ever have... I don't, my dad, no, I don't think so. My mum was one of the happiest, you ask Grace, my mum was one of the happiest people anybody ever met in their life. My dad was 
you know, you'd say my dad was a pretty regular kind of guy. I had a cousin, I write a chapter about Lackey, my cousin in the book, who killed himself. Um, and that was, he was from the island, from Tyree. Um, and I wrote about that because he's got three kids now grown up who I know really well and like a lot. And I know they've struggled with um, the consequences of what their dad did. Right. And But the reason I wrote it, the chapter, was I wanted them to have something in black and white with the observation that he... I don't know this because I didn't speak to him when he was about to kill himself, but I'd be amazed if he they weren't foremost in his thoughts because I've had that. When you get suicidal ideation, I can persuade myself when I'm really depressed, when I'm on the kind of nine end of my scale, I can persuade myself that, you know what, if you kill yourself, Fiona and the kids will be a lot happier. You can persuade yourself of that. And I suspect Lackey did that. I mean, he was he had a drink problem. He had really bad depression. Um, lots of stuff, lots of issues. And he just, I think, found the pain unbearable. But, you know, I wanted to write something that said to them, you know, don't ever, ever think mm. it's about you. No, I, and I agree. I imagine that that is, that is the only way because you feel like you're relieving the other people in your life of mm. your presence. And it goes back to what you are saying earlier about when you feel like everything, you're worthless, your life and... What? That's why I hate this thing about when people say it's selfish. No, it's not selfish. I can, I, I think that's true too. Mm. And the fact that it was a crime. Or a sin. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's like this, the, the word... I know why people do it and I, I shouldn't get pissed off when they do but I really do get pissed off when people talk about committing suicide because you know the language of commit it's mm. called commit suicide because you commit a crime yeah so what do you say take take their life, life ended their life by suicide uh kill themselves whatever just you know and it's the, the, that's the trouble with mental illness is that we don't like saying what it is um you know I again quote my mum in the book when she had a a, a relative who had anxiety and depression, and, and mum say, oh, Sheena's come to stay with us, you can be nice to her, she's, she's having trouble with her nerves, right? You know, it's like that whole kind Pussy of... Pussy footing around it. Yeah. When you analytically look at depression, and what school of thought do you subscribe to? Like, do you, do you believe in the Johan Hari idea that depression and mental illness come from a lack of connection? Have you read his book? Um, Chasing the Scream, that one. Oh, that, I read that one, but have you read Lost Connections? No, yeah, sorry, that is the one. Chasing the Scream's a new one, isn't it? No, no. Lost Connections, Chasing sure? the Scream's the old one. Okay, last, read Lost Connections, I think. Okay. I can't remember, but he Chasing was Chasing the Scream's about the drug trade. Yes, and about how um, he goes and visits all those different people yeah, yeah. in those different communities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're both very, very, very good books. Um, but we're talking about my book. We're talking about oh, your book, but oh, I, no, no, I want to book. ask you, I'm using that as an example because some people... It, it, would do I think it's about? Do I think that connection and community is really, really important? Yes, but I do. you don't think it's always the cause. No, I think that I don't think we know necessarily. Multi, you know what the causes are. I think there are multiple causes. Uh, I think for some of us, I think I really do think that it's our biology. Well, no, some people get it and some people don't. Some people get, you know, some people are born with weaker. Muscles than others. Mm. Some people are born with weaker chests than others. Some people are born with. Some people are going to get diabetes. Some people are not. And I, I think that some of it is conditioned. Um, you know, one of one of the people I interview for the book, I go and see this guy who's. I mean, his depression 
when I compare my life story and my upbringing to his, even I think, Christ almighty, what have I ever got to be depressed mm. about? Which is a horrible thing to say because it's not what you, it's not how depression works. But this guy, I mean, horrific childhood, horrific. And you think, well, yeah, I can see why he would get depression. I could see why he gets PTSD. I can see why he has all sorts of stuff going on in his head. And yet, you might find there will be members of the royal family born into wealth and privilege and all that stuff who get depression. It's not a wealth thing. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That's why this is, that was why I asked the question because I wanted to ask you the follow-up. It's exactly what you just said is how you feel about when people, I assume, would have previously leveled at you. You've got an incredible life. Yeah. How can you be depressed? And I think this was one of the full, uh, one of the like biggest barriers to us accessing a better conversation about mental health. Was people really thought that there has to be a catalyst for it, and there isn't always. But but with you, when you did have a big breakdown, it was when you left in Merticomas. Well, it's interesting. Do you think that uh, that, that, that did, did that was that a catalyst in bringing it on? Again, probably is the answer, or. Was it that I was already in a pretty bad place and leaving? Gave took, the room. Yeah, and took away the sense of drive and purpose that I had. And it went. And it's interesting, Grace, as you know, has written a book, which she has ordered me, I have to plug, on this podcast. It's amazing. It's called Amazing Disgrace. And it is amazing, and it's very, very, very funny, but also very well written and serious in parts. But it's interesting, it was quite shocking when I read it, because she described... What happened to me in 2003, 4, 5 as a full-on nervous breakdown, right? I didn't feel that. I feel that the only full-on nervous breakdown I had was in 1986 when I had a full-on nervous breakdown when it was psychosis the lot. But it's interesting that that's how Grace saw it because what she saw was the person that she thought I was, lively, energetic, funny, always trying to, you know, get things done, whatever, was now sort of like a bit of a vegetable lying on the sofa all day. Um, or staying in bed and Fiona saying, you don't disturb him. In retrospect, would you call that a nervous breakdown now, or not? No, I think it was a quite severe depressive episode. What, what, tell me about your actual nervous breakdown then. Well, that, that, was, that was a full-on crack-up um, inside of my head, sort of figuratively exploded and voices and music and hallucinations and... And, and had to be arrested and hospitalised. I didn't know that. Uh, should have read a book, shouldn't I? I can't believe you do an interview. The first thing, are you going to interview something? Look, it only came out last week. You didn't send me a copy. You could, well, one, <laughs> you see Grace quite often. You could have said, can you send me, never mind a copy, a PDF in advance. I would have done. Um, you know, you have to sometimes... But you have to I know you, I know you. I know you millennials sort of think everything should be done for you. No, I don't think that. But <laughs> I actually want you to sell us the book. I like this. I like hearing about it before you get there. But do you, live in, do you live in fear or worry that that episode, that that could happen again? Is that something that you... I, I do, do I live in fear and worry? No. Do I have 
fear and worry that it might happen again. Yes. I don't live in fear and worry. So tell, tell me now how, because this is what the book is about, right? You're surviving and thriving. Am I thriving? <laughs> I think you're doing really well in this old interview. Good. I know it's one of your first, so... I know, I've not done my interview. I'm very nervous. Are you? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. look absolutely terrifying. Um, no, it's, so it's, uh, it's in two parts. It's called, it's called Living Better, which I think I do. I think I live better than I did. And I think I, there's lots in the book that I hope will help other people to live better, whether they have depression or they don't. Because a lot of it's about avoiding depression. Um, but, so it's in two parts. First half really is me, my life story, my depression, my family, my brother, my cousin, Callum, our son who is a recovering alcoholic, um, all the sort of mental health bits to my life. And then the second half, I call it a search for a cure, but it's really just an exploration of the science of depression and all the different things, some fantastic stuff going on. And then the end of the book is me kind of explaining how I think I've... And I say learn to survive depression because I don't think... You can overcome it. No, I think you you can survive it and you can live a good life with it. And that's what I that's what I do most of the time, but I've got no doubt at all I will have depressive episodes in the future. Um, it's just that I'm better at dealing with them now. You the, did. Was that a good sale of the book? That was really good. Yeah. We're not finished yet. Are you trying no. to leave? No. no, you're not going yet. You've written more books than anyone else I know. How many books have you written now? Sixteen. It's quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah. And how did you feel right? Because this is a you wrote a small book ebook thing about about mental health before right ebook thing an ebook was that thing. what it was happy depressive yeah it's a little yeah. thing but yeah. now this is a proper which was so successful it was turned into a real book was it mm. look at you <laughs> <laughs> so how did this feel compared to all of your other books which have been very politics based have been your, you've always been a writer do you think that writing has been part of coping with or you just always love writing i've always um the, one of my previous books number one bestseller winners and how they succeed Quotes Marilyn Monroe. Have you heard of Marilyn Monroe? Oh, no. Who's she? You have to tell me. She was a very famous actress. Oh, was she? Yeah, yeah no, no idea who that is. <laughs> we say actor now. Uh? Male or female, it's just actor. Okay, do we? Um, yeah. <laughs> well, Marilyn Monroe wrote a poem called Think in Ink. Okay. I think in ink. Are you going to recite the poem now? No. Oh. I just know the title. I, I could, I've read it, but I, I don't remember the poem in detail. I couldn't recite it, but I remember the Think in Ink. The poem's called Think in Ink. And it's... And I've always done that. I order my thoughts. I, you know, that's why I keep, probably why I keep a diary. I strategize in, you know, if I'm trying to think something through, I will write it down. I do it with my own, you know, if, if, I, if I've got a, my own kind of life. I do it with the kids. I quite often, you know, if the kids are going through tough stuff, I, 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 or, or if we're not getting on or something, I will write to them. Anderson. Uh, sometimes my handwriting is so bad. Is your, do you still have a diary now? Yeah. And is that handwritten? Is that typed? It's a bit of both. I'm more typed now than it was. And do you know what? I don't think it's as good. Well, because you don't think you get that same feeling when it... Yeah, I think I should go back to it just being a pen. But I, I think the reason I've done that is that when I was transcribing my diaries for publication, it was so ballsaking to have to do it all. But also, it's actually, I've kind of forgotten, it's so, it's so not used to writing by hand, that no. I get like arm ache if I try to write anything too long. My handwriting is, it's always been bad. But now, I literally, I did a dedication the other day in a book to my nephew, I sent it to him. <laughs> and he sent me a message, he just said, thanks for the book, I can't read this. And I looked at it, nor could I. 
I actually don't do know you what write, it says. Do you write a specific pen that you have to use? Do you use like a fountain pen or do you use a... Ugh, you sharpies for, sig- Sharp- oh, right, sharpies for signatures. I was going to say you can't write a diary with a sharpie. And if not, I know for that, just a biro sort of or a felt pen. And do you think those diaries would ever be published or those for private? No, no, no they've been published. No, but your new ones now that you're oh, writing. Yeah, possibly. I don't know. So do, when this is what I'm really interested, because if I was writing a diary and I knew that at some point in time it might potentially be published, yeah. I'd definitely be like editing it a little bit as I went along. Maybe spicing bits up, taking bits out. I don't Can think you be I'd as do. honest, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I don't think I do do that. Um, maybe subconsciously you do. When I Because when I started keeping a diary, what you know, decades ago, I didn't, I didn't, why would I even imagine that? No, exactly, back then you wouldn't write, but... So maybe, I I said maybe sometimes I was worried, I mean, the fact that I write them in this microscopic shorthand, I think was an indicator that I was worried... So it's code? A little bit, what if I left it on a train, what if it got picked up, that could have been a problem. But no, I don't think, and look, there are some, there is material that I've left out of publication that's either... Very, very personal, not for me, but for other people. Right. Or sometimes if I've just thought, oh, that's really cruel. And you just look back on it and you think, I'm I not think, the person that wrote that. No, or it's about something that somebody else says about something. You know? Right. Um, but in the main, I mean, that's why, you know, you've, you've met Fiona, right? We're very, very different people. Grace is more like me. We're, we're both sort of, you know, put your life out there. Yeah. Um, once you've decided to do that, then part of doing that is actually, well, life's on the record. And also, it's, I imagine it's very freeing because I'm nowhere near as unguarded as Grace is. And I do, I do think that she's got that from you. And I think it's actually an amazing thing to have. Because like you say, you can, no one Sometimes can ever judge you. I she was a little bit more guarded. No, it's so good. In the, in the book. <laughs> Generally. No, I love it. What it's I great. don't know is where she's got her loudness from. Because Fiona and I are both very quiet. You're so loud. What? You listen to you, you're so loud. Do you mean volume or just general I mean volume, demeanour? I mean volume. You're very loud. My voice? Yeah. No, bullshit. <laughs> if you were if you were on a train three seats away from me, you wouldn't hear what I was saying. On but the that's phone. only when you mumble. Like, when you were talking to me the other day about something to do with something you listened to on a podcast, couldn't hear a word. But that's when you were talking about that, so I don't know what you're saying. No, I'm a very quiet person. Grace is very loud. I think it's back to this thing. You're quite loud as well. It's just you're as weird. really loud. Am I? Yeah, a bit. That's good because that's what my job is now. Just talking. I, all my school reports where she talks too much. She's too loud. Well, I'm, I'm a real believer in turning perceived weaknesses into strengths. Exactly. That's mm. what I'm. Okay. Right. Your final. You're allowed to leave in a minute. But before that, what about the schools thing? Oh, would you want to talk about that first? Well, I don't want to keep you here forever. I don't mind. Okay, I let's go. Whole, you told me this is all about stuff it you didn't learn at school. But we're learning it through you. Okay. So right. Talk to me about school. What do you want to talk to me about? Class and passion and that. Or do you want to go in from? I really want you to answer. You still haven't told me when you first learnt what depression was? Like, at what age were you when you learnt that word and understood it to be a mental illness? I don't know. Um, depression. Probably around the time Donald was diagnosed, because, um, uh, you know, they talked about... In one of the explanations was that sometimes it'll be like he's kind of catatonically depressed. Um, I guess it was around then. That's when I started to read about mental illness. Right. Um, so probably around then. When I was at school... But even then, depression was kind of like, it's people would be like, it's sort of made up. Yeah. And a lot of people still think that. A lot of people still think that. A lot of people, you know, I quote in the, in the um, do you know who Jeremy Hunt is? Yes. Who is he? 
He was the health secretary that was awful because my sister was a junior doctor. She wrote him a really long letter. Ah, oh, good for her. Well, he, I quote him, in the, I mean, actually, compared to what the government is now, people are going to look back at him. Yeah, that's true. But anyway, um, he, I had a meeting once with him where he, he actually said that he, he sometimes, you know, he'd, he'd seen a film about me talking about depression and he sort of thought, he said to his wife, you know, he's got such a, I always thought I was going come by such a great life, I can't believe he would get depression. So people do still think that, but I think it's going. But I think the big problem, I, do, do, do I, would I think that mental health should be taught in schools? Definitely. And you can call it what you want. You see, like, I'll give you an example. Everybody who goes to school is taught that running around the playground once a day is good for them. Mm-hmm. Playing football is good for you. You know, all that stuff. We do sport. Well, we should explain why. One of the reasons it's good for you is that actually it's better for your mental well-being and your resilience. And... Whether you call it resilience, whether you call it well-being, call it whatever you want, but teach kids to look after themselves. Sleep. We, we know that you, you know, if you're tired, you should sleep. But actually, I never knew why. Mm. I've kind of gone and learnt a bit about that. Sleep, diet, exercise. Why is that good for you? Why? And, and here's the other thing from a government. I know they try to do some of this preventive stuff, but they don't really kind of motor on it. We would. I save the health service money by looking after myself. Yeah. Um, I used to cost the health service quite a lot of money because I was getting all sorts of illnesses, which I now realise a lot of them. I mean, I had I had this supposedly incurable. I was told it was incurable stomach condition called ulcerative colitis, and it was really, really horrible. I mean, you really don't want it, and it's vanished. It- and I think it's vanished because I've actually started to look after my mind and body in a different way. Was it like a stress-induced ulcer? Is that yeah. the one of the ones sometimes you have to have a colostomy bag for, not with colitis? You do eventually. With the, it becomes Crohn's disease. Right. And, but, and what it is, you, you, just, you, you just kind of lose control of your insides, to be honest, and it's hot. the pain is horrific. And I was told we can manage it. You have to take these drugs probably for the rest of your life, and I was taking these eight pills a day, and it was kept under control, and then I bumped into the doctor who'd diagnosed it, and he said, if you had a, you know, you should get regular checkups. I hadn't had a checkup for years. When I had a checkup, he'd gone. But you are very fit now. You exercise a lot. So fit. And you don't drink lots, but you, you used to smoke a lot, didn't you? I did, yeah. And drink a lot. Yeah, yeah. But then again, it is a privilege to say, you know, you just got to look after yourself, and then you don't cost the NHS money, because it's true. But then... As you say, we're not educated to understand why health is important. Right, why so therefore, and, and therefore, and this is where government's got to take a lead. So, I mean, I get, and, and, and I understand it when people say, it's all right for you, you've got a decent living, da 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 we can't all kind of eat the best food, and da da But actually, there's an awful lot more that we can do that doesn't cost money. So interestingly about physical health, it's very true. I went to a really sports school, hated sport, because I only thought exercise for girls about being about weight loss. And if I'd only just realised before that exercising is actually amazing, I love it at every single day because it's so important to me. But I didn't right, know Right, so that. what you were taught at your school, and your school had a really good reputation for sport, what you were taught was about this is good for the school. This is like, this is about competition and all that mm. stuff, which is, I, I believe in that, right? But actually, explaining to kids, kids love knowing why things mm. work. Explain to kids what are the benefits, you know, the, I, I grew up in the time. I always loved sport, right? 
But I can remember a lot of kids at my school who they would associate PE, as it was, physical education, with the rain, with getting picked on and bullied in the showers, with a, a sort of brutal teacher who shouted at you, all that stuff, right? If that's what you associate it with, mm. you're not going to get into it. Actually, teaching what, why that is good for you, I think it's fundamental, and we don't do it in schools in the way that we should. But I think that's why Joe Wicks doing his PE class was actually so transformative, because it made it fun, and people enjoyed it, and it was people doing it at home with their parents. I think also it's mirroring what it's your parents Tory, though, do. He's what? He's a Tory. Is he a Tory? How do you know? Did you just decided? I don't know. I think then I read that he backed. He definitely came well. from a very working class background and built his way up and bought his mum a house. Okay. He's a really sweet guy. Okay. Do you know him? No. Has he been on your podcast? No. no. Why? I don't know. I just. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want Joe Wicks. I just don't actually have very many anyway, listen, quite if... straight men on my podcast. Okay. So you're like. Um, I'm pretty rare. If yeah. he is not a Tory and wasn't the Brexiteer, I totally apologise. Okay. Uh, if he was, then. Anyway, so um, I noticed you didn't, you know, I was trying to dangle out a little bait there when I sort of dropped in your private education, because I love talking about private education. Let's talk about it. You like talking about class. You love talking about it with me because you think I'm so posh. You are quite posh. But technically you're posh now. Am I? I had a really interesting... Do you know who interviewed you? and love this. Guess. Go on. Ash Sarker. Okay. And we were talking about class, and she's talking about how it's really interesting because we've now created this false economy of class where it's not... Necessary. Is she the, the big Corbynista? Yeah, the one that we that we spoke about before. Yeah, and, and, and the, the, the one who, who backed a Labour Party that was never going to win power and now we've got Boris Johnson, we've got Brexit. If it wasn't her fault. No, I'm not saying it was her fault at all. So she was saying, and I thought it was really interesting, that we have all these weird markers of what we say, you know, classes, and actually it's been completely um, taken away from, like, socioeconomic... Um, yeah, but it's still there big time. And, and I'll tell you, and private education is a huge oh, driver. Yeah, 100%. I agree with you on that. I'm just saying, I think it's really interesting when we talk about being po- like what poshness is and what, what, like, what is the working class now? Really, working class means people who can't work, you know? And, mm. and people who are perhaps builders or constructors might actually end up being very wealthy. Yeah. These things are just, I think, they're quite interesting. <laughs> no, the, 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 the definitions have changed for sure. And I think there is a sort of romanticization of working classes meaning you know coal miner shipbuilder uh train driver the, the sort of traditional working class jobs whereas i i think in a way the reason why we still have the labels is because we are still not fully a meritocracy mm. and for me the biggest driver of that is the fact that seven percent of people use private education and that seven percent is part of, in the main, that's why it makes me vomit the way they go on about Brexit was, you know, one for the people mm. against the elite. Johnson, Rees-Mogg, Farage, all that lot, they are the elite. And that whole thing about, you know, I, I think I said to you before that Eton, one school, has produced three times more prime ministers in our history than the Labour Party. Yeah. Now, if I look at Boris Johnson, I don't think... If he didn't have the background he has, the education he has, the acts, the posh accent he has, the rest of it, I don't think he'd get near to being Prime Minister. So Britain is still an anti-meritocratic country. He doesn't deserve to be Prime Minister. No, He's useless at the job. But do you not think you're elite now? Do you think you can trans... What do you think happens? Do you think... What would you say your parents were? Would you... Well, your dad was a vet. That was a vet. I'd say, well, my, 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 my grandparents, as crofters, I think you'd define as working class. Uh, quite poor 
uh, my dad, middle class, because he, he, he left, he got a scholarship. Uh, he actually, because the, the island he came from, he got a scholarship and actually was sent to a private school. Then he went to Glasgow University, became a vet. Um, he, I, so I come from a middle class family. Did and then the elite thing, am I part of an elite? I guess if you have been in the top levels of government, you would be considered to be part of the elite. Did Fiona encourage your feelings for education more if your dad went to private school or did you get that from working un like within a Labour government that had all these... No, I, 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 I'll tell you when I got it. <laughs> my hatred of private education came from my time at Cambridge. Right. I've, I just felt that... Look, I met loads of people who went to private schools that I liked and I thought were clever, but I met lots of them that were complete knobs who, if they didn't have wealthy mummies and daddies, they would be next to nothing in the world. And yet they run, run around the place as though they own it. And I'm afraid they're back in charge in this country. And if I think of, you know, I think one of the tragedies of what, you know, so we had, you know, a long time in power for a Labour Party. Uh, Tony Blair won three elections. We made a lot of change. But the fact that these clowns and charlatans are back in charge makes me think we can't have done everything right. Well, I think that's the biggest fundamental question. That's what I talk about with Ash. But you're yeah. dealing with really deep, historical, mm. cultural, civilizational attitudes and outlooks. And, and, and I do think... that I think the class system in this country is, 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 is hideous and it's still there. You know, I think the other thing where you get class now that it's the whole kind of... Um, you know, there are many, many, many middle-class, black and ethnic minority uh, British people... And yet there will be an assumption mm. often that they are working class. working class. And yet then you have this label, the white working class. Mm. Um, and it's, it's just a, it's a mess. And one of the reasons it's a mess is because we're not really a meritocracy. We get it in the north-south as well, this idea that if you have a northern accent, then you must working, be working class. Yeah. And all of those things, I think they, they create so much, so many problems. I know, and see the south, you look right, well, here we are in, in Camden. We live in a very, very nice part of the town right next to Hampstead Heath, at the bottom of the road, that estate at the bottom of the road, you'll have some of the poorest families in the mm. country there. Tower Hamlets is the poorest part of the country in many ways, right? But because it's London, and because you have a government that does all this talk about the metropolitan elite, when they are the metropolitan elite, I'm afraid we're being gaslighted the whole time. And that's, that's what I was going to say before. It's so insidious that people don't even know. Like Nigel Farage, people really thought he was a man of the people because of the way that he carried him. And there's, there's lots of things like that within politics that I think are jarring. And and people don't, you're right, when it comes to private education. I mean, I've seen it. I know that there's so much nepotism. I would never now send my kids to private school. Hmm. Whereas I would have well, done good. That, you see, You see, I, I, I think it's, it's hard sometimes. It's like I didn't like it when those protesters went and had a go at Jacob Rees-Mogg. Jacob Rees-Mogg's kids outside his house. It's not their fault, yeah. right? But it will be their fault when they're adults if they think, well, well, that's the system we have to perpetuate. So, do you know Zadie Smith, one of my most favourite authors? One of your most favourite authors. Yeah, she's yes. amazing. She, I was listening to her on Adam Buxton's podcast and she interestingly said the other day, she's like, if you think you're one of these young liberal people in your 20s, she's like, come back and talk to me when you're in your 30s and if you haven't sent your kids to private school, then I will believe that you're someone that mm. really cares about people. And I was like, that's so interesting because I've been talking about it so much. One, with the majority of your family that have all mm. mostly been on my podcast. <laughs> and two, just thinking about it a lot. And I was like, it's so interesting and I think it's true. It's like you can't buy into a system and say that I really believe in this. Well, I would say, Mark, if you, if you take... So, our three kids, two boys and a girl, 
went to the local primary school, which when the Rory was there, was got one of the worst Ofsteds a school can get, right? <laughs> and loads of the middle-class parents took their kids out and took them to crap private schools. Um, Fiona became a governor, became chairman of governors, did it for years. The school is a really, really, really good local school now. Um, they went to seniors, to Grace went to Parliament Hill, the boys went to William Ellis. Um, very mixed intake. And would they have... So Rory got to Oxford, Callum got to Manchester, Grace, you know, got, is, is now a sort of self-style self megastar <laughs> in her head. And um, has written the best book ever. You know. She really has. And no! But they, they, I would argue that even though they might have got a better classical education in terms of, you know, preparation for exams and all that stuff, had they gone to a private school, I think they are better educated people. I think the fact that Grace... I, I did an interview about Grace the other day and I said that one of the things I love about Grace, she's got an amazing capacity for friendship. Mm. And so, yeah, I think my kids are better educated because of the going to a state school. Yeah, but I do think it's true because I think in education now, when I look back, first of all, I think the syllabus is that kind of thing and we need to change what we're teaching children and the way it's impl implemented. But, but, but for me, which is why I do this podcast, because all the things we don't get taught in school, I do think as someone who is privately educated, I actually came out really unprepared mm. for knowing what the world was like yeah. because you're in such a bubble and they are really you're told you can do whatever you can want to. and in a funny way if you take advantage of it it can be amazing it's not that it's but fundamentally you're right it doesn't and you're but also you're, you're made to feel whether you like it or not you're made to feel that you are somehow superior to people who are not educated to the same level in the same way and that somebody who doesn't sound like you is going to be a threat you know, I think there's a lot. I think that's the the, the kind of the, the demonization of. I know we agree that the labels no longer mean means necessarily the same thing, but working class people, I think, is a real problem. And and and, the, and so all of these things to me are to do with uh, the seven uh, percent being educated out with a system that they therefore don't support properly. And the other problem you've got is most of the key opinion formers, editors, commentators, people who run the big media organisations, they're all in that, virtually all of them, right? I think I'm right in saying at one point, it might be different now, but there was at one point where there wasn't a single national newspaper editor who didn't either wasn't privately educated or used the private sector for their own kids. Now, when that happens, they have a vested interest mm. in saying the state sector's crap that's why we have to make these choices and it's bullshit and, and uh, yes and I, state I, sector's crap because governments make it crap because people aren't investing in it because they're not the people who maybe have the yeah, but it's not just financial to... investment it's the emotional that's investment what i mean if, if everyone's leaving lagging behind and going well, state schools are shit then there's no going to be no real like union of parents and people exactly. saying we're going to make change but the one thing i think the private school gave me which i i wouldn't say that i inherently thought it was better but you are instilled with this ability to talk so the biggest thing i got from my schooling wasn't necessarily my grades or my academic it's this way that they teach you how to talk to people and network yeah. it's like imbued from this day you start going you've got really it's part of the same thing and so and so that's what's a real um that's your massive advantage because you can walk into any room and you just know how to talk yeah. to people yeah and then, and 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 that then the, the other thing is you use the word network 
you know, that's why I, I don't, I won't do, I do the occasional one, but I don't do talks in private schools because partly to make a point, but also because I know that those schools can fall over themselves to get interesting speakers to go into them. Mm. Whereas state schools, a lot of state schools struggle. So if I'm going to put X days of my year into going to talk to kids in schools, I'm going to do it in schools where I think they're going to benefit from it, hopefully, more than somewhere where they couldn't give, give a damn, really, whether it was me or, you know, a footballer or a... They can, they can, because they can get those people because they, they, they use those schools. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I know what you mean. Yeah. We've gone completely off topic. Right. Sorry about that. That's okay. My fault. Do you, have you got it off your chest now? Yeah. Do you believe me that I'm not an awful privately educated person? No, I do. I do believe you. Um, and I, but the reason is I'm with Zadie Smith is because you said, and I'm going to hold you to this. You can hold me to it. Right. If and when you have kids, you have to stay alive for ages. I'm going to. I, well, I will stay alive for a while because I'll look after myself and my mental health. But I, I, I'm 63 now, so let's. Uh, let, my dad was 82. Let's say I've got another 20 years. So oh, yeah, you, I hope I'll try and pop yeah, some out by then. Right. So, uh, but they'll have to be four. Have to have four children. No, then they, they've got to go to primary, state primary school, state right. secondary school. Oh, so you've got to, until they're 18, oh, so I've sure. got to get them out soon. Sure. No, no, yeah. as in you've got to be around yeah. watching. No, 11. 11, 11. okay. And then Grace will keep tabs on you for okay, the rest good of idea. Dead. That's good. <laughs> That's perfect. Um, fab. Okay, should we shake on that? I'm quite sweaty. Right, okay, last thing now. My Genuinely books. last thing. My books. What are your three favourite books? This is so hard to do. So, so hard. And by the way, we'll probably three different ones tomorrow. What I brought is my favourite book on politics, okay, which is called Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin, and it's about it's a, it's a, the story of how Abraham Lincoln became president and then brought his three closest rivals into the key jobs. And it's a just, I mean, it's a very, very long book. As you so is that, it's the three chapters about the three rivals? There's, there's more than three, there's hundreds but of chapters. But those sections? No, that's just because what happens sometimes in, in non-fiction books, Ernoni, <laughs> is they put pictures in I know, there. I've seen. So, at, um, <laughs> so they're not chapter breaks, they're pictures. Beautiful. You have yeah. pictures in your books. You do picture books, don't you? Some sometimes of your earliest books. So that's my favourite that's my non-fiction book. Okay. Although even as I do that, I think, what about this and what about that and what about that? But that's the one I'm giving today. Thank you. My favourite novel is Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert. I haven't read it. Right, well, I think you should. I think you'd like it. And But this is the book that made me love the French language. Okay. Is it in French? I've read it about 11 times in French. Right. I've even made Fiona listen to it in English. Um, she doesn't like it much. Did like you read it. it in French the first time? Yeah. When did you learn French? I did French in school, and I think I did it for my A-level. So that's when I... And I really loved it, and it's what made me want to do French at university. And then, talking of French, this is a book that I now take with me everywhere. As you know, because I told you earlier, I'm doing an advanced German course at the moment, and I'm even translating my own book into German. Very cool. Right. So when we were in France recently, we went to the market... Not the market. We went to Vaison La Romaine, and they have this wonderful thing in Vaison where they just leave old books lying around the streets. To, for people to take? Just, it's called, it's called um, En Porte de Moi, Take Me Away. Love that. And you can take it away, you can put it back and bring another book or do whatever you want. And it's a fantastic thing. And I found this one. And it's, it was published in... I need to get my glasses that you were taking the piss out of. <laughs> I wasn't, I just thought you looked it very was, suave. It was published in 1929 in Heidelberg, and it's a French book on German grammar. Wow. 
And Can you I just found it? And what I love about it, look at this. So it's got, you know, the old style German writing that looks like, you've yeah. seen it in films where it's literally a different typeface. They've got that. And it's, it's, it's like, uh, just, I, I, can, I, can, I can look at this book for hundreds and Who's thousands. Who's writing it? Someone written that? This is like, just, this is a way of showing how German handwriting is different oh, as well. And then it's got all, it's got hundreds and thousands of tests. So it's got like this thing, Tableau Saint-Tonique des Déclinaisons de Nom, Forte, Faible, Mix. That's the, the, the conjugation of nouns. And what age, is this, would this have been someone's school book, do you think? Or is it too advanced? I just don't know. No, uh, it probably was a school book, yeah. It's quite advanced. But no, but it's very basic. It goes through, it start, you start with like, you know, how to write in German and... Uh, so this is this is at the moment. I, so at the moment, I'm travelling everywhere with this. So book. you're learning German in French. Le learning German, and but helping me. I've got an English grammar book as well, but I'm learning German, and it is helping me not lose my French. Because the reason I'm doing German is because I lost it. Right. Oh, so you had did actually know it before. I wonder why you're so good. So you'd spoken it before. I did French and German at university, but then since then I've used my French. I've kept up my French, but I've never really kept up my okay. German. So I'm determined to get back to doing. And my ambition is to translate my own book into German and then do interviews on it in German. Amazing. What's yeah. your favourite German phrase? Uh, oh, that's a very good question. My favourite German phrase. The one that popped into my head when you said that was Du bist alles, was ich will. What's that mean? You're everything that I want. Oh, thanks so much. But I don't say it to you. You can't say that to me. No, I say so you it have to Fiona. tell Fiona now. I do. I say it to you. Du bist alles, was ich You've forgotten. I'll give you, you're allowed one bonus book. Probably Claret's Chronicles. No, what are you on about? <laughs> Claret, Claret's... No, no. Oh. Who uh, else's book? Amazing Image. Disgrace. Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye. What's that again? Did you not actually know that that's what I was saying when I gave you an extra book? No. What's the claret one you're going to say? Claret's Chronicle. It's a history of Burnley Football Club. It's got, it's got, oh, I'm not it's bloody got a record, reading that. It's got a record of every game we've ever played. Amazing. Yeah. I'm never going to read that. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Do you feel like you've got a lot off your chest? I feel a lot better. I hope that... But, I, but I'm only going to be happy if, if that gets more listeners than... The than average. normal. Do you want me who's, to give you tabs? Who's been the, your best listened to, most listened um, to? Probably the one with my mum. So where can people buy your book? Everywhere. Shops, the the the, the non-tax-paying Amazon if they have to. I like independent bookshops, yeah. so I'd like them to do that. If they okay. can't get any... And by the way, I do say to people, if they're going to shop and it's not there, send me a message on Twitter. And you'll tweet them. Name the shop. Name and shame. Name the shop, and then the publishers get onto them saying, why isn't your bucket in Waterstones in Harrogate? Okay, perfect, we'll do that. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. And oh, and also, you're young oh. people, aren't it? It's e-book e and audible as well. Okay, thanks. Have you done the audiobook? Yes. And Fiona's done her chapter. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you everyone for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.